Many of you remember I uh, spent the summer on sabbatical. I'd been here for going on seven years. And um, while I was on sabbatical, I did a lot of hiking. Um, I love hiking. I had never gotten to hike the huge mountains that I had always wanted to hike. And so I took my opportunity, my time off, to go climb some 14,000 footers that I'd always wanted to, some 12,000 footers that I had uh, always heard about. So I got to hike um, uh, Long's Peak, uh, which is a little over 14,000 feet, 14,275, I think, to be precise. Um, and I thought, this is a breeze. It wasn't, but I, I did it. And that gave me some confidence to keep hiking these big 12,000, 13,000, 14,000 uh, mile hikes. And so after I'd finished Long's Peak, two days later, I decided I was going to do the trek up, the trek up Mount Ida, which I had read was day and night different than Long's Peak, a lot easier, but still you have to be careful because of the thunderstorms that would roll in during the summertime. When I first walked out of my tent in the early morning hours, the weather was beautiful. The skies were clear, beautiful blue, crisp sky, perfect sunrise. It was just the perfect day for a hike up Mount Ida. I felt so good about the day that I rejected the advice to get to the trailhead early, and I cooked myself a big breakfast because I didn't want to be hungry on the trail. So I made omelets and went ahead and cooked the bacon that was about to go out of date and did some campfire biscuits. I mean, I did, I did it all and just feasted. I arrived at the trailhead as a consequence a lot later than I had planned, but the skies were still fairly clear, except for those dark cumulonimbus clouds that were off to the south. But surely it's not that big of a deal, right? They're way down there. They're way out there. It's not going to be a problem. I had this little brief moment of apprehension, especially when I saw another hiker beside me who actually looked like they knew what they were doing, look at the clouds and turn around and go back down. I thought, well, he must be slow. <laughs> he thinks by the time he gets up to the top, the storms will have rolled in, but young buck like me, it's five miles to the peak, just a little elevation gain of 2,500 feet over those five miles. I can make that in two and a half hours, normally. I should be back down the mountain before the storm even begins to, crest the, to, to cross the, the valley. Now, experienced hikers, again, people who know what they're doing, will tell you that the slightest sight of a dark cloud or the slightest rumble to go back down the mountain immediately there is no predicting how fast these thunderstorms will roll in or how bad they will be. So you can be looking at a cloud and think it's relatively small, and then when it comes in, it's a completely overcast day. Okay, so you just have no clue what's going to happen. Well, I heard a few rumbles about halfway through my hike, but again, they were still on the other side of the valley. Surely I'll be able to make it to the top and back down before the storm roll, rolls in. Now, for those of you who have hiked, you know that's called summit fever, where you do stupid things to get to the top, where you just have to make it because you've climbed all this way and now you want to get to the top. You want to be able to say that you stood on the little elevation cap that's up there that tells you how high it is. So you can go brag to your buddies that you made it to the peak. And so I kept hiking, rumble after rumble. 
And then I could see the top. There it was. I was about 25 yards away from the peak. And suddenly, my eyes opened up to see how dark it had gotten. Summit fever had made me completely blind to the fact that these clouds that I thought I could beat back down the mountain had not only made it over the valley, but were now right above me. The first boom of a thunderclap told me I was in some serious trouble. I don't know if you've ever been on the mountain during a thunderstorm, when thunder rolls in. It is absolutely terrifying. Like, you know, they tell you when you hear the boom, then you see the flash, and then you count the little seconds, or you see the flash, and then you hear the boom, you count the seconds. My friends, it was flash and boom right away. Like, I mean, there's no, there's not, I mean, lightning's hitting on the ground right there. You feel like you're going to go blind from the flashes that are hitting the side of the mountain. It's supercharged up there because of the granite rock, and you're the only positive thing up there. <laughs> you're up above the tree line, and so these lightning bolts are trying to find a place, and the marmots are like running for their lives. I panicked. I was, I'm, in, I'm in desperate trouble. Do you realize every year, dozens of hikers die on Mount Ida because of the same situation? Terrible. I take off at a dead sprint down the mountain. I, I get off the trail. I'm going straight down the hillside, not caring about what's going to happen next because I am absolutely terrified I'm about to get cooked, roasted. Now, there's a point in time everything just got worse. The hell started to fall. It started pelting the trail. It started to rain. The wind got cold, and this huge wind gush just sent like shivers up my spine. Lightning flashing just on the peaks right around me. I mean, it's just, it's just right there. The thunderclaps, I, I, I felt as if I was going to go deaf, and I froze. I just stopped walking. Have you ever been so afraid in, this, in these desperate situations, have you ever been in such a desperate situation that you just literally froze? Like a deer in the headlights, seeing headlights coming careening right at you. I always thought deer were stupid for that, but then I had that moment where I'm standing here, there's no going back, there's no shelter, lightning all over the place is coming into my mind that I am going to die. Like this is terrifying. I can careen right down the mountain and off a cliff, or I can continue down the path and get struck by lightning. So which one is it going to be? And so I just stopped and stood there like an idiot for minutes and minutes on end. And it wasn't until finally I heard someone further down the path, uh, you better move, that it kind of kicked me back in the gear, and I finally... Uh, made it down the mountain. That's good news for most of you. And so I, hear, I stand here today. Now, I've thought back on that experience a lot. I've never been that close to a thunderstorm before. I've never felt like I was actually wrapped up into the clouds with it. Like being that close to a lightning bolt just changes your life in many ways. The boom of the thunderclap, just, just terrifying. I called Rachel right after and told her about all the experience and <laughs> like an insensitive husband. I was like, it was so great. <laughs> she was like, you're coming home. So, um, but I think back on that and I see certain correlations between my own fear on the mountain 
and the way fear works in our everyday life. Namely, fear has a tendency to immobilize us. Fear has a tendency to cause us to freeze. Now, some people overreact and, you know, they just run down the mountain. Other people just freeze. We see the storm clouds of suffering. We hear the thunderclap of hardship and potential danger. We feel the chill of death's cold breath. And oftentimes the result is that we just stop walking and we don't move. We just sort of stand there rather oddly doing nothing, too afraid to move on, too afraid to do much of anything. I've had many a friend admit that the hardships of the last couple of years have led to a momentary paralysis in their discipleship. There's many people in our church who have confessed and admitted that because of what they've seen, because of what they've felt, because of what they've been afraid of, they've sort of just stopped walking with Jesus. They're frozen. They've not done the things that they know they should do. They've not pursued discipleship. Bible reading went straight down the toilet. All because of fear. So here's a couple of questions. What do we do when the thunder rolls across the mountaintop of our lives? What do we do when we see flashes of thunder and lightning uh, on the horizon? What do we do when we feel the cold chill of death and feel the shiver down our spine? Do we freeze or do we do something else? Esther, I believe, teaches us how to have an audacious faith, a bold faith, a faith that calls us not to passivity, but to faithful, fruitful action, but not just any action. Think of how dumb it would have been for me to die by falling off a cliff that day because I was running from a thunderstorm. Not just doing anything, not just moving, not just doing any action. God calls us to have faith and then to have faithful action. That comes from faith. It's not just doing something, not just running down the mountain, but it is moving in faith. I think Esther teaches us in the midst of the hardship of Haman's plot, how to let our faith motivate and mobilize us for faithful action that glorifies God and blesses others. In the end, my hope is that we will learn from their example when we face our own hardships and our own suffering and our own fear, that we will model the kind of faithfulness that they show us. Now, Haman's edict of execution has been delivered to every province in the kingdom. Everyone knows that the Jews are going to die. And the goal is, is that all the Jews are going to die. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the middle of the city and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance at the king's gate clothed in sackcloth and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, just a little explanation here. In ancient times, tearing one's clothes, putting on sackcloth and ashes and fasting was a way of expressing intense mourning, intense sadness, uh, just this discouragement that had set, had, had set in. For Old Testament Jews, it is often symbolic of throwing oneself into the hands of God. You see that 
in a number of times that when the Jews face a crisis, like in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the result is absolute fasting. In Ezra chapter 8, they put on sackcloth and ashes. In Joel chapter 2, it talks about sackcloth and ashes as they wait for the Lord's salvation. In this, a person recognizes their poor and disastrous situation, and they sit in the dust, symbolically awaiting God's intervention. In other words, God, if you don't do something, I'm going to return to the dust. I'm going to die. I'm sitting in death. Raise me up out of it. That's what the symbolism is here. It certainly seems to fit with Mordecai's action in Esther. He and the Jews have clearly understood the hopelessness of their situation. They understand they have no political advocates. They understand that the day has been set The edict has been ordered. There's no reversing it at this point, at least from a political standpoint. Their situation is absolutely lost unless God moves his hand, unless God intervenes. Now, when viewed against the the rest of the Old Testament, I think the Jews lying in the ashes is important to the narrative. If you know your Old Testament scripture well, then you know that those who sit in the ashes tend to be the same people that God raises up from the ashes in the end. I think of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Now, according to Hannah's song there in 1 Samuel 2, God will raise the poor and lowly from the ashes, and he will put them in a place of princes. And all this to show that he is completely sovereign. The pillars of the earth belong to him. He's the one who owns the foundations of the world. Governments are built or toppled by his hands, not by kings, not by princes, not by governments, not by votes. Governments are built by his hands. He owns the pillars of the world. And in the end, there will be a great reversal. Now, the fact that we see the Jews sitting in ashes in Esther 4 signals that we're about to see this great reversal. We see it in the narrative, sitting in the ashes. The next natural expectation must be they're going to be raised from those ashes. Those who sit in the ashes and are God's people inevitably get raised from the ashes. Now we see that that reversal, we'll see that happen next week in Esther chapter 6, when Mordecai is taken from the ashes, exalted to sit on the king's horse, while while Haman, the, the enemy of the Jews, has to lead him in this humiliating procession. So we're going to see this great reversal as the story is ultimately about how Mordecai and Haman switch places. Mordecai sits in the dust. Haman sits in the princely place, in the princely palace. By the end, everything reverses because God humbles the self-exalting and God exalts the humble every single time. Every single time. So that gives you an important backdrop. Now, what does that mean for us as we see Mordecai and the Jews sitting in the dust? My friends, can I just let you know there are times that God's people sit in ashes. You may be wondering, you know, I thought it would get a lot better than this. I thought in giving my life to Jesus, everything was supposed to, it was supposed to be 
happy ever after from here on out, right? My friends, I think as Christians, we must accept the fact that life is not always feasting. It will be, but it's not yet. Life is not always feasting. Mourning and fasting are both aspects of life in a fallen world. Jesus himself said that. He said that when the bridegroom is here, fasting is absolutely inappropriate. It's a time for feasting. But when the bridegroom is taken away, God's people will once again, what? Fast. Now, the point in that is that we're in a season of fasting. We're in a season of sitting in ashes. We're in a season of lying in the dust. It's just a part of the Christian life. Fasting, sitting in the dust, reminds us that not all is yet as it should be. Certainly turn the book of Esther. Things have gone terribly wrong. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is joyfully feasting while God's people are mournfully fasting. That's not the way it should be. It's God's people who were promised to feast. And Haman, the enemy, who should be fasting, who should be lying dead in the dust. And yet their fasting foreshadows a great reversal that's still to come. That will bring a great feast on the horizon. So my friend, you may not feel like you're feasting right now. You may not feel as if you're sitting at the kingdom table at this moment, feasting on the good wine of God's grace. That's normal to life in this world. There are times we sit in the dust. Now, here's the question. Do we have a faith that reminds us that God is too faithful and too good to leave us there forever? You see, sometimes our deepest desperation comes from the fact that we think that God has forgotten his promise. We think that God has left us. We think that God has abandoned us. We think that we'll never again get to feast and be full. No, right now we fast, and we fast in the knowledge that one day the bridegroom's presence will be restored, and we will feast again, and we will be full. So that's where we leave off with Mordecai for now, sitting in the ashes with his fellow Jews, looking for death to come. Now, when Esther hears from her young attendants that Mordecai has torn his clothes and is sitting in the ashes, she's like, Mordecai needs new clothes. You'd probably do the same for your cousin who was sitting at the doorway with nasty clothes. You might send him out with fresh garments, right? I hope you would anyway. But Mordecai doesn't accept them. He's not going to take them. There's a subtle irony in this clothing exchange. My friends, and I'm, I'm too much of a Bible nerd to really not point out details when you should see them. Clothing in the Bible is important. What one wears or doesn't wear and who dresses them are all important to the narrative. Almost every single time, the reversal of the, the theme of clothing exchange leads to the theme of great reversal right? Whenever someone is naked and ashamed, I got made fun of for saying it that way in Brazil, naked, 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 naked and ashamed, naked and ashamed. There you go. And they get clothed. There's a reversal happening. There's other times you get proud people who are royally robed and they end up stripped in the end. Samuel, uh, the book of Samuel is a great example Jonathan humbly strips himself of his royal robe and hands it over to David, symbolically showing that he's relinquishing the kingship, giving it over to David. 
Saul's not going to have that. He's going to hold on to his robes, thank you very much. And yet in the end, Saul is stripped and ashamed and naked because of his self-exaltation. And David wears the royal robe. We're going to see the same thing here in Esther. Mordecai has torn his clothes and is wearing sackcloth and ashes. Yes, he needs new clothes, but it will not be Esther who puts them on him. It will be Haman, his enemy. I don't want to get too far ahead of the story, but this is the, the, the comedy in this book. That the very man that wants Mordecai dead is eventually going to have to go out and get him, bring him back into the palace, dress him up. That means taking off his sackcloth and putting on a royal robe on him to crown him, to seat him on the horse, and then to lead him as his servant. New change of clothes is coming. And it will come at the hand of Mordecai's enemy not Mordecai's friend. It kind of reminds you of the psalm, right? He makes a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Where those who oppress God's people, those who persecute God's people, will eventually have to eat crow while God's people feast at the table. It's this great reversal that's to come. Let's not jump ahead, though. When her attendants report back that Mordecai will not receive the clothing... Esther sends her eunuch, Hatak, to Mordecai and asks him why he's mourning. Mordecai tells Hatak of Haman's plot and gives him a written copy of the edict to take back to Esther. He tells the messenger that Esther must beg and plead, must beg and plead with the king on behalf of her people. So she must do something. It's easier said than done, as Esther is quick to point out. All the king's servants and the people of the provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except to the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. The real predicament. The Jews not only face annihilation, they have no one who can really stand for them. Esther is seemingly the only person who can help, and she is handcuffed by policy. If she goes in before the king uninvited, and for more than a month, the king has not called her to his chambers, which means she's not invited to the kingly court. If she goes in, the law requires that she dies. You get that? If she goes in for the Jews, it's her head unquestionably, written in the stone of the law. Now, I think Esther's hesitation is understandable. I think some of us kind of read that and we're like, come on, Esther, take one for the team. I'm not so sure I would have been so willing, right? My head or your head's comfortable place? I hope, I hope I would have the grace and the strength to lay down my life for my friends. But I've never been in that situation completely like that. Esther, on the other hand, has humanly hesitations. She understands that it will cost her her life. But Mordecai remains firm in his hope of deliverance. He warns Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. 
And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's got some important words to say here. He's displaying his faith. For one thing, he is certain of salvation. Realize this. Even if Esther does nothing, Mordecai believes that relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Not might arise, will rise for the Jews. He fully trusts in God's promise. Because God is God, he will not stand by while his people are exterminated. To allow this extermination, this Jewish annihilation to happen would mean one of two things. God is unfaithful to keep his promises or number two, God is unable to keep his promises. Mordecai knows neither one are true of God. God is faithful. He will keep his promise and he's powerful to do so. He completely trusts God in that way. Have you ever had that kind of faith that just knows that your, your death is seemingly certain and yet God is powerful and faithful, able and willing to do what he has said he would do? He's not a, a Scrooge-like God who's unfaithful to keep promises. And neither is he a weak and handcuffed God. God is powerful and able. That's why we've been preaching for two years in this pandemic, in societal upheaval, that whatever we think we're missing, we miss nothing. Because if nobody stands up for us, salvation will rise for God's people. Let's not talk so faithlessly. Let's not pretend as if our salvation is determined and built on the foundation of men. If it was true in Persia, it's true here. The question for Mordecai is not, will the Jews be saved? It's how will the Jews be saved? You see, that's a totally different question, isn't it? Not will the Jews be saved, but how will the Jews be saved? Mordecai goes on to suggest that Esther's rise to the throne could very well be for just such a time as this. In other words, there's a sovereign God moving the pieces. Who knows, Esther? Maybe God gave you the throne just for this moment. God has a way of getting what he wants. God has a way of being able to accomplish his will when we even don't think it's happening. Do you realize that? We may, what we may think to be a loss, what we may think to be a tragedy, what we may, be, may think to be an incredible suffering, whatever it is, God is faithful to do as he has said, and he has the power to make it happen. Who knows, Esther? Perhaps this terrible tragedy in which you were kidnapped out of your home and brought into the king's harem was done just so that you could be there when Haman's best friend wants to kill us. God's absolutely sovereign, even over our bad tragedies, to accomplish his good will. Wow. That is sovereignty in its purest form. Potent sovereignty. 100% proof sovereignty. Absolutely potent power of God. Now, in his warning, though, Mordecai calls Esther's faith to action. She must act even if it means risking her life. God is in sovereign control. Mordecai knows that. Even in Persia, he's in sovereign control. And therefore, she can and should go before the king. 
her husband and plead for the lives of her people. It's not that everything depends on her. In fact, Mordecai says it doesn't. Mordecai says, if you do nothing, deliverance will come from another place. So it doesn't depend on her, but that doesn't mean that Esther can sit back on her rear and passively do nothing. It's God's sovereignty and faith in God's power and sovereignty that motivates us to faithful action. You see, faith and faithful action are two sides of the same coin. As God's people, we do not merely believe and do nothing. James has a whole book on that about how faith without works is dead. And neither do we just act and do whatever we think is best. In the book of Judges, God's people are doing a lot of things. None of them God's commands. So we're not called to just believe and do nothing. We're not called to just do and not believe. There's got to be somewhere where in our Christian faith, we merge faith and faithful action together. Faith should govern our actions. Do you realize that? Too often we just do something long before we allow our faith to inform, is this even the right thing to do? We just act, we jump reactively to to just do something. Faith governs our action, and our action should be a clear overflow of our faith. Clear overflow of our faith. I think this truth has manifold applications for our lives. For example... I completely believe that God is sovereign over salvation. I believe that God, according to Romans 9 and according to Ephesians 1, has predestined and called and elected people to be saved. I think he's absolutely sovereign over that. I don't think that denies or cancels out his command to share the gospel. At the very basis of it, I should do it because he told me to, right? I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that China has already belonged to God. And yet it was in that faith that motivated me to go and be a missionary. As someone who believes in the sovereignty of God. As another example, I fully believe that God has the grace enough to forgive every sin I commit. I don't believe that gives me freedom to sin, does it? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Absolutely. Believe that God has the grace to forgive your sins. Believe and have trust and faith that God will forgive every sin, not only that you have committed, but that you are committing and that you will commit. That still doesn't mean you passively sit by in your sin. If anything, it's faith in God's grace that motivates you to repentance and obedience. Every single time, that's the way it should work. You see the faith and the faithful action working together? It's because I believe that God is a God of grace that then motivates me in my faithful action to be obedient. Those two things should go together. You know, to be faithful exiles, we are exiles. First Peter calls us so. We are exiles. As Christians, we do not belong in this world. This is not our home. We are not citizens here. Okay? We're citizens of heaven, a heavenly country. Do you truly believe that? Okay, if we are exiles, then, like Esther and Mordecai, then we cannot move on until we understand this point. There are indeed many times, in fact, times every day that your faith requires action. 
However, whatever action we feel compelled to perform must not counter or nullify our faith. You see, the logical progression is clear. Number one, what do you believe? And in that, you can add a parenthesis question that says, and does it align with the truth revealed in scripture? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about what God wants? And how does that line up with what you find in the black and white pages of scripture? Number two, how does faith in God call us to act? So you see, we go from faith, what we believe, to now what should we do? Question number three, are we certain that the action we're about to do will result in the honor and glory of God? Can I just tell you, if not, go back to question number one. Because somewhere along the line, you've misunderstood God's nature and character and person. You see, there's far too often that we believe we're being faithful just because of what we do. That's not true. There are many people who are doing lots of good things and are being completely unfaithful in it. They're doing the right kinds of stands, but they're completely unfaithful in it because they don't do it God's way. Faith and faithful action go together, not just doing something. You see, we Christians, we fall on two sides of the road. On the one side, you've got this ditch of practical theology that says, let go and let God. In other words, God's in control, therefore sit back, don't do anything. Let go, let God. On the other side of the road, we have an equally dangerous and deadly ditch that says, just do something, do anything, move. It's a call for action that gives little consideration for what God actually wants us to do, just tells us to do something. Those two things may seem to be completely opposite ends of the spectrum, but they, they, both of them, both sides of the ditches reveal, number one, a misunderstanding about God and his will, and number two, it leads to the deadly rejection of his commands. You see, let go and let God, and this side that says just believe and do nothing, and this other side that says just do something regardless of what you believe, both sides lead to disobedience. So whether you're a passive person or a very active person doesn't make you faithful. It's faith and faithful action. Let's work this out in a practical example, huh? I'm spending a lot of time on this because I think this is what Esther teaches. God is God. Amen or no? God is God. What does that mean? What does that imply? When we say that we believe that God is God, we're saying that we believe God is king. Amen? Does, does everybody here believe that God is king? And as king, he has rights and authority to command us. Amen or no? Okay. So you believe that God is king. You believe that God is authoritative. You believe that God has absolute right to tell you how to live your, your life. So far, so good? Okay. What about your speech? Let's take it down. If God is authoritative, and if God is God and God is king, does he have a right to tell you how to speak? Yes or no? Okay, well, we know from Scripture he's told us to speak the truth, right? So we know what to speak. We must speak the truth. There's so many people out here, so far so good. We believe God is God. God is king. God is authoritative. He told me to speak the truth, so I will. 
So I'm being faithful. Uh-uh-uh. God says, speak the truth in love. So not just what to say, but how to say it. You see, my faith that God is authoritative over all my life must be an overflow all the way down to the smallest point of how I say something. You might be saying the right thing. Your tweet may get the most shares and the most hearts. You might completely agree with somebody's message. And yet, if you don't do it in the way that God wants you to, you are just as rebellious as somebody who doesn't say anything at all. Why do we have trouble getting that? I'm a husband. There's many times I'm absolutely right. (laughs) Based on your perspective. And yet if how I feel about something doesn't match up with how I should say it, treating my wife with gentleness and kindness and love and mercy and grace, I'm right about the right thing, but completely wrong in the presence of God. You know, Paul, uh, Peter says that men who don't live with their wives in an understandable, understandable way, their prayers are hindered because of that. Why? Because God cares how they speak to their wives. Faith and faithful action, not just what you believe about God, but how you do every single living thing in your life matters. At the end of the day, your reactive spats at people, your anger, your venom, your gossip, your lies, your whatever it is, unveils the lack of faith in God. Faith and faithful action always go together. It's not just doing something. It's doing something that God wants us to do. It's not just doing something that God wants us to do. It's doing it in the way that he has told us to do it. Why? Because we believe that God is God. Can we just repent for a moment? I think there's many of us that that is the only real application from Esther. Is that we must repent. That we must make sure that our faith is governing our action. And that our action is an overflow of our faith. How many times in lives do we see what we do and what we say and what we yell at people about? How many times does it actually reveal a lack of faith in God while our mouths are saying that we believe in God? What a sad tragedy that is. Esther seems to understand this point. Faith and faithful action goes together. She sets all hesitations aside, and she tells Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, there's a whole lot of nonsense and commentaries that criticize Esther at this point. Because she calls the Jews to the fast, but she doesn't say fast and pray. My friends, I don't see in an Old Testament text where fasting's ever without praying. 
I think it's implied here. She tells Mordecai, go tell all the Jews to fast, which means tell them to stop eating and pray on my behalf. She's throwing herself down in a courageous faith into the hands of God. She's going to fast. Her young women are going to fast. They're going to fast for three days, and then she will go. And then her faith leads her to faithful action. On the third day, Esther put on her, her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. Now, Esther's never been in greater danger. Her being taken from home against her will, that was small peas compared to the danger she now stands in. She has broken the law. She has come into the king's presence uninvited, clear violation of royal protocol. Now, at this point, we've got to ask the question, what are the chances that Esther's going to be spared? I mean, the, the king deposed ex-queen Vashti for not coming to him when he called, a violation of his authority. What is he going to do to a queen who violates his authority, breaks his protocol, and comes when she's not asked? I mean, if Xerxes is consistent, Esther doesn't stand a chance, does she? I mean, he's punished people for this before. What is he going to do when this somewhat subversive Esther stands in his court, seemingly as a slap to his face? And there she stands, doomed and ready to die. Now, pausing for just a moment, I think we can see this brave woman of God. She doesn't come with a hidden dagger to stab Haman, does she? She doesn't come with a private army of guards to storm the the capital of Persia. She comes with simple faith. She stands like David stands before Goliath without any armor. Why? Because the Lord saves not with sword and spear or with guns, or rocks, or poles, or flagpoles, or anything else. The Lord saves not by any of those things. The Lord saves. The Lord saves by his grace. If he did save by the sword, if Esther slit Haman's throat in a dark corner and ended all this, it's not God who gets the glory. It's Esther. You see, faith and faithful action... She believes that God's in control, so she stands in faith. That's an action. She stands, life on the line, ready to die for her people, and she does what's right. Faith and faithful action. Now, one would fully expect him to have this impulsive outrage to call for her execution, and yet, when the king saw Esther standing in the court, she found favor in his sight. He extends his scepter completely uncommon, not normal at all, unexpected. This is not what King Xerxes is like. He even, so you remember, it was out of fear that the women of the kingdom would revolt that he pushed out Queen Vashti. Well, now he tells Esther, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. What a strange flip-flop, isn't it? Tries to preserve his own kingdom, divorces his wife because she breaks protocol. His new wife breaks protocol, and he offers her half the kingdom. What, how do we solve the mystery? If not, it's God twisting the heart of the king where he wants it to be. You see, if Esther died at that moment, all the Jews die with her. 
All the Jews are annihilated. And yet we're reminded again of Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He offers up to half his kingdom. And Esther says, I'll settle if you and Haman will just come for a feast. And he agrees. That very night, they go to a feast. And now the stage is set for a sovereign, gracious, great reversal. Where God's people are going to be exalted out of the dust. Haman's plot's going to backfire and he's going to die on the very same gallows that he plans to kill Mordecai on. Some of you may say, don't spoil the story. You've had 4,000 years to read it. (laughs) A great reversal is coming. Now, all this points us to Jesus. Talk about faith and faithful action. Jesus had the power to do something. And yet he chose to trust his father, humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of a slave, died on the cross, something that no one did except for slaves. Citizens and normal, common, average Jewish citizens would not have been executed that way. It was slaves and traitors that were killed in that way. He was buried, but he knew even in his death, that God would not abandon him. He, he, the, the Psalms speak of him. God will not abandon my soul. My body will not see decay. And after three days, he rises again. And now he's exalted to the right hand of God where he reigns forever and ever and ever. And what he won, we benefit from. Because he died for us, we receive a life like his, therefore a resurrection like his, and even more than that, according to Ephesians 2, an exaltation like his. We are raised up to the heavenly places where we have a seat at the king's table where we will feast. My friends, you might be fasting now. There might be famine now, but there is a feast to come because your great Lord and Savior has gone on ahead and purchased the table for you. And it's in that hope, in that glory that we wait. Esther's stand in the court reminds us that we have an even greater mediator who stands in heaven for us, ready to turn our fasting into feasting. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you will give us the faith and the faithful action to do as you have said. Lord, let us not just do something reactively, impulsively, angrily. Lord, let us what we do and how we do it match up with what you have commanded us to do because we believe that you are king. Let our faith govern our action and let our action be a clear overflow of faith. Whatever we do today and tomorrow and this week, I pray, Lord, that it will be clearly seen by those around us that we believe and trust in you, the Lord our God. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.